You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We now know why a major RCMP investigation into money laundering collapsed. The targets were alleged to be part of a system suspected of washing a billion dollars a year through casinos and real estate. After years of work on so-called Project E-Pirate, Global News has learned federal prosecutors made a mistake that killed the case. John Hua reports. Many saw it as the best shot at justice against the flow of dirty money here in British Columbia. The massive RCMP e-pirate investigation centered around a company, Silver International, and allegations a couple who ran it out of this Richmond building was using it to launder money connected to both China and organized crime. Now those allegations were never proven in court and the charges were unexpectedly stayed in November right before it was supposed to go to trial. Now, Global News has learned through a review of court filings and interviews with sources familiar with the case that the federal prosecution may have accidentally revealed the identity of a police informant in its disclosure package to the defense. And the fear was that if the case proceeded to trial, the informant's life would have been put at risk. BC's Attorney General says it's mistakes like this that erodes the public's confidence in the justice system. When they see a huge high-profile case like this, uh, into which some significant resources have gone, uh, falling apart on the eve of trial and people walking away uh, without criminal charges, uh, not even facing a trial, I think that causes the public a lot of concern, and it should. It causes me concern as well. And that's why we're raising this issue, and that's why we're pressuring the federal, go federal government. Is it a matter of resources? Is it a matter of training? Former Crown Prosecutor Sandy Garosino calls it a tragic mistake that can happen with cases of this size, but says it only shows that action against criminal money laundering has to be taken from multiple fronts. We cannot rely on individual cases to solve the problem. That's why we have to have a public inquiry. We have to learn about the systemic issues. EB says the province is going after the property and cash connected to this case through its civil forfeiture office, but adds that if a second commission report into money laundering by author Peter German doesn't satisfy the public, that could lead to a full public inquiry into money laundering in this province. John Hua, Global News. So-called yellow vest protesters out in force in Kamloops today expressing their frustration with the Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau back in B.C. for a fundraiser and town hall talking jobs, the economy and pipeline expansion. And as you just saw, it wasn't exactly a warm welcome by everyone. Our Sarah McDonald is in Kamloops tonight with more on the day's events. And Sarah, the town hall gets underway in less than an hour. Chris, that's right. In just under an hour, the Prime Minister will be taking questions from the public here at Thompson Rivers University behind me. And if reaction to his appearances earlier today, as you just saw, are any indication, tonight's town hall could get heated. <laughs> This was the first of several protests the Prime Minister is expected to encounter. During his short time on the ground here in Kamloops, you're looking at multiple groups of protesters that all gathered outside the hotel where Trudeau attended a Liberal Party fundraiser earlier today. He also met with the Mayor of Kamloops, Ken Christian, and local Indigenous leaders. A strong faction of those demonstrators out today are Indigenous leaders themselves and supporters of those ongoing anti-pipeline demonstrations across the country. Uh, many there that you're seeing on your screen 
screen are simultaneously protesting the treatment of members of that northern BC First Nation that has been at the center of that face-off with RCMP all week. Now, the other half making up the majority of those demonstrators identify as so-called yellow vests that you see there. They are part of a global movement calling for what they call economic justice, and they are also protesting the carbon tax. But as a group, they've come under scrutiny in the past 24 hours. RCMP confirming to Global News they are looking into death threats involving the Prime Minister posted by social media users identifying themselves as Yellow Vest members based in Canada. We asked those here on the ground about that issue and the wider message they're hoping to convey to the Prime Minister later tonight. It caught me a little bit off guard, but I wasn't surprised. When you've got 117,000 people in a group, there's always a few bad apples. And a few bad apples will always spoil it for the bunch. What I hear from people, I've never protested before, but now they're upset. We got senior people. There's one 82-year-old lady in, uh, in uh, Kelowna, never protested a day in her life, and now she's out because she's not happy. Yeah, galvanizing appearance here for sure. And amid the noise of those demonstrations, the Prime Minister will be largely talking jobs, economy and the environment as he kicks off his 2019 cross-country outreach tour at 7 o'clock tonight. And he has touched down on the West Coast at an interesting time for another reason, just hours after announcing federal by-elections for three seats, including in Burnaby South. That's the riding federal New Democrat leader Jugmeet Singh is looking to clinch. Now, we are expecting at least some of those demonstrators that you just saw to be be back here at the town hall later tonight. We have been seeing a steady stream of people entering the auditorium behind me since the doors opened here just over an hour ago. It will, of course, be open to the public. No doubt, Chris Trudeau walking into this one, expecting some pointed questions from constituents in this city that is expected to be a key battleground riding in the lead up to the federal election in October. Look forward to seeing the coverage later. Thanks very much, Sarah. Now, pipeline protesters also taking action in Vancouver today. One of the entrances to the Port of Vancouver blocked by demonstrators. The activists and environmentalists marching to show solidarity with the anti-pipeline protesters in northern B.C., 14 of whom were recently arrested. RCMP moving in to enforce a court-ordered injunction earlier this week. Catherine Urquhart now with more on the day of disruption and the promise from protesters. Escorted by Vancouver police, approximately 150 protesters marched down Hastings Street, the second such demonstration in Vancouver in as many days. Another show of support for the 14 people arrested Monday at a protest camp near Houston. Seeing that on, on the news, watching that, broke my heart. It's, it's truly sickening and really sad what happened. You're trespassing on Wasserton land. The arrests were made by RCMP members enforcing a BC Supreme Court order to remove anyone who interferes with the planned pipeline. A project that is supported by all elected First Nations along the route, except for some hereditary chiefs in one area who oppose it. Hastings and Clark, demonstrators blocked an entrance to the Port of Vancouver. Port operations were able to continue, but a number of truckers were trapped. Almost maybe 15 to 20 truck more now in the line. It's all going through the now tunnel. Motorists were forced to detour, 
and some transit drivers were left waiting it out. Just wondering uh, how this is impacting your day. No, uh, no By late afternoon, the protest was over, but organizers are promising to continue their demonstrations. Maybe some things planned and uh, it's just all in the makings and it's, it's going to be, you know, a little bit hush-hush and we'll just, uh, so that the uh, police don't know where we're going or what's going to happen. Them is her! As for the 14 people arrested Monday, supporters say all of them have now been released from custody. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. All right, Keith Baldry joins us with more on the Premier's position on all of this. Keith, John Horgan addressed the protests this morning. What was his take? Yeah, it's interesting, Sophie. This was an unscheduled, uh, hastily called news conference this morning for John Horgan to weigh in on this. And it was interesting also pointing out that in the old days, when they were in opposition, he very likely would have been at some of these protests himself. But he points out he's now premier. They're now in government. They have to view these issues differently. And they're complex issues. The point he made talking to reporters, that even though while he's praising the company here, firmly backs the gas company laying down that pipeline and the project itself. He says they've done enough uh, adequate consultations with First Nations, but nevertheless, Nevertheless, a very tricky file to navigate. Uh, Take a listen. There is no quick fix to resolving issues that go back to 1876 and beyond. There's no quick fix when it comes to addressing differences of opinion within families, within communities, within clans. 203 bans under the Indian Act in Canada. 13 houses, five clans, and what's so in territory speaks to the challenges that investors have, the challenges that government has, and the, the challenges, in fact, Indigenous communities have. So after he made those statements, the president of Coastal GasLink, uh, Rick Gateman, released a, a statement praising and thanking John Horgan for his support of the company and that project. But while he was doing that, federal MP Nathan Cullen was on Twitter criticizing Justin Trudeau for allowing this thing uh, to get out of hand uh, up in uh, Wet'suwet'en in the territory. So Nathan Cullen, though, an opposition member, John Horgan, a government member. Difference mm-hmm. uh, between the two, they're in the same party, but obviously different levels of responsibilities. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Keith. As the news tightens around Vancouver's remaining illegal marijuana shops, several stores opened by a couple who spearheaded the push to legalize marijuana are set to close. Jody Emery is now faced with shutting down all three of her unlicensed dispensaries. Grace Key explains why, despite Emery's emotional appeal to stay open. What about that colorful? For a quarter century, cannabis culture has been a fixture in Vancouver, and owner Jody Emery for years has fought for the legalization of marijuana. But now that legalization is here, she'll be forced to shut down three of her stores because she can't get a license. We've been trying to get that license, but have been meeting barriers all along the way. So we're still attempting to get licensed, but it seems the bylaw and proximity rules mean we are not eligible. Congratulations on being the first customer in Vancouver. The closure comes on the heels of Vancouver's first three legal cannabis stores opening up. Friday night, City Cannabis on Fraser Street made the city's first ever legal recreational pot sale. Come on in, let's do this. On Saturday, customers were lining up outside of Kitsilano's Evergreen Cannabis Society, ready to get their hands on some legal pot. I can talk to professionals that know their product knowledge. I'm not buying it 
purchased off some guy who bought it off a guy who bought it off a guy. There are 28 illegal marijuana shops still operating in Vancouver. Last month, the B.C. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the city, ordering them to shut down. Jody says she'll be making an appeal to the city to stay open. While we have the opioid crisis and the city government giving out opioids, they should be giving access to a safer alternative. In response, the city wrote Health Canada has taken steps to license more producers than ever and to include a greater variety of products in order to increase options for medical patients. Adding work is underway with the mayor's emergency task force to explore options for the use of legal cannabis and preventing deaths from opioid overdose. This is probably made by someone local. Cannabis culture is laying off 50 workers and must shut down its shops by the end of the month. Its flagship store on West Hastings will continue to operate as a bong shop and vapor lounge. Grace Key, Global News. Right now, though, BCU Brews, where customers can create their own beer and wine, say the government's antiquated liquor laws are hurting their bottom line. Customers are not able to sample the beverages before they fork over the money. Now, as Jordan Armstrong reports, they're urging the government to catch up with the times. At Burnaby Brewing Company, everyone's here for the beer. People, they walk in the door and they're excited to make their own beer. They're excited about all the flavors we can produce. Just don't ask to try it before you buy it. We can't do it. We're not allowed to have finished product on site. That's the provincial rule Jesse Shepard and every other U-brewer must obey. So we've got the Zunga Golden But the beer industry has evolved. Craft breweries and their tasting rooms are everywhere. There's a whole generation now which won't spend until they sample. Oh yeah, that's the one there. What's their reaction when you tell them they can't try some? All right, thanks. See you later. They walk out. Pretty much. I'd say 80% of them. In B.C., craft breweries are licensed liquor manufacturers, while U-Brews are licensed similar to grocery stores. I'm, I'm ordering this, and I, I want to I know how it tastes. At Cask and Keg in Maple Ridge, customers say the rules are outdated. You should be able to come and taste the, the, your product. It's good. It'd be a good idea if the uh, government change it and let people sample it. We're great for weddings, large events. Um, Desperate for new customers, Shepard says he'd pay a higher license fee for the ability to give out samples. But when we asked the government for a response, we got a canned statement. Merely an explanation of how the current rules work, and no suggestion the province is open to any changes. We bought this company so me and my wife can have a family business. We work hard. We're here every single day. And it's, it's a struggle. We want to grow something for my kid. But without reforms, there are fears this kind of business will go down the drain. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. The future of clothing donation bins in this province is up in the air with Richmond and Burnaby, the latest cities to ban the bins until their danger is addressed. And now a nonprofit organization says it stands to lose thousands of dollars because the bins have been temporarily pulled. Meanwhile, advocates continue to call for a fix or a permanent ban. Nadia Stewart takes a look at both sides. In the case of my daughter, she was getting clothes out to give away. Loretta Sundstrom has been vocal about the need to fix these bins since 2015, when her daughter Anita Hawk died in Pitt Meadows after becoming stuck inside one of these units. I think that what they should do is get rid of these bins. If you need something, redesign them. Make it safe and accessible to everyone. The donation bins are now the focus of a nationwide debate. Following the tragic death of a man in West Vancouver last week, then another death in Toronto on Tuesday. But amidst the calls to ban them, 
This story of the success of the program and what that means isn't being told. Len McLugan hopes some kind of safe middle ground can be found. He says the bins are getting a bad rap when they can be used to serve a good purpose. I'd really like to see it reinstated. For the past year, three bins set up on the Sunshine Coast have brought in about $15,000 for the Sunshine Coast Association for Community Living. The money paid for this van's lease and was driven by two individuals with special needs, whose job was to empty the bins. Once a week, they would drive the truck to Valley Village in Vancouver, which is where the clothes were sold by the pound. McLugan says the discretionary money went a long way. To underwrite a trip for somebody or buy a piece of furniture or some appliances. To make life better for someone in need. He's hoping the debate leads to action about the real problem these tragedies are highlighting. What is driving people to try to get into bins? So that should stimulate a conversation about homelessness, about affordable housing, about drug addiction. Just removing the bins doesn't make any of that go away. Nadia Stork, Global News. A federal battle is brewing right here in our own backyard. Prime Minister Trudeau officially calling by-elections for three vacant ridings, including Burnaby South. And that is where NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is hoping to win a seat. Richard Zussman has more on what the Ontario native needs to do to tap into B.C. voters. We're ready. We're ready. Bring it on. The wait is over. Jagmeet Singh finally has a by-election to run in. In 47 days, we're going to send a bold message to Ottawa that Canadians are done waiting. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced today Burnaby South voters will head to the polls on February 25th. Singh has been the federal NDP leader since 2017, but hasn't had a seat in the House of Commons. The Burnaby South seat opened up when NDP MP Kennedy Stewart resigned to become Vancouver's mayor. So we moved out of here, my wife and I. Uh, we've got a, a lovely place, uh, Vancouver Special, so it's pretty iconic that way. And uh, we've been connecting with folks ever since I ran for leadership. I found an immediate connection to the people of Burnaby South. But connecting and winning are different things. The NDP won the riding by a little more than 500 votes over the Liberals in the 2015 election. This time, Karen Wang is running for Trudeau's party. She's a child care provider who has lived in the riding for more than a decade. I'm very familiar with our community and every day I'm working with families and I have a strong connection with the families. Jade Chin is running for the federal conservatives. SFU political scientist Patty Smith says he isn't sure Singh can connect with local voters, considering he's only been in B.C. for a few months. My sense is that Jagmeet has not done a whole lot to connect with local voters. And this leads to Singh's toughest question. Can he stick around as leader if he loses in February with a federal election this fall? I will be the leader that runs uh, the New Democratic Party into the next uh, federal election without any doubt. And there's one sure way to make sure he doesn't have to answer that question again, and that's to win the by-election. Richard Zussman, Global News. Vancouver Island's main thoroughway may be getting a backup plan. The province has launched a feasibility study on an emergency route for the Malahat Highway. And as Kylie Stanton reports, anyone who's been stuck in one of the route's many traffic nightmares agrees this can't come soon enough. On average, once a month, the traffic snarls and thousands of Vancouver Island drivers are left to wait it out. Do you know how much longer it's going to be? A Malahat shutdown is something many here have come to expect. 
but it doesn't mean they like it. This is an urgent matter. We hear the frustration. Now, the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure is committing to improving the notorious stretch of highway, launching a feasibility study to explore potential emergency detour routes that could be activated in the event of a closure. British Columbians need another alternative, an alternative that is closer and that can be opened up very quickly and help get people moving and get them on their way. Currently, the only way around is either the 22-car Millbay Ferry or the 300-kilometer Pacific Marine Circle Route, connecting Lake Cowichan to Port Renfrew on a narrow road that has little to no cell service. A more convenient option being considered is to create a bypass that runs through part of Souk Hills Regional Park, but also through the watershed that feeds the Souk Reservoir, supplying more than 35,000 people in the region. That's the big concern, that it not even come close to harming our water supply. It will be up to the Capital Regional District to make sure the environment is being considered, as well as First Nations and local community interests. If the province just says, here's what we're doing, without any meaningful input from the CRD, it will be difficult to say that this project has social license. The Souk Hills Bypass is just one of many options on the table, and just one part of a comprehensive look into improving traffic flow on southern Vancouver Island. We need to help get people moving. As for a timeline, the feasibility report is expected to be ready this spring. If an alternative route is identified, work could begin as early as the summer. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Caught on camera, a member of the Florida Highway Patrol pulls over with emergency lights activated to help a disabled motorist. Moments later, a Mazda changing lanes to avoid slowing traffic swerves right onto the shoulder and slams into the back of the cruiser. The engine of the Mazda caught fire, prompting the trooper to jump out of his vehicle, pull the damaged door open, and rescue the driver. The man had serious but non-life-threatening injuries. A day after U.S. President Donald Trump's primetime appeal for border wall funding, his face-to-face meeting today with Democratic leaders was a bust. The president walked out, and the Democrats say he seems willing to keep the government partially closed for months or even longer. Hallie Jackson reports. Talks have collapsed tonight after that confrontational 20-minute meeting in the Situation Room between Democrats and Republicans, each side describing it in their own words. It's cold out here, and the temperature wasn't much warmer in the Situation Room. The president walked into the room and passed out candy. Our meeting did not last long. I asked him to open up the government. The president then turned to the speaker and politely asked her, Okay, Nancy, if we open the government up in 30 days... Could we have border security? The Speaker of the House said no. A few minutes later, he sort of slammed the table. Nobody slammed their hand on a table. We saw a temper tantrum because he couldn't get his way and he just walked out of the meeting. At that point, I think the president thought there was no longer any reason to be talking at this meeting. How does it help that the president walked out of the room? How is that getting closer to a solution? I think the president made his position very clear today that there will be no deal without a wall. 
The president called the meeting a waste of time on Twitter. Quote, Nancy said no. I said bye-bye. Nothing else works. One of the few ways out now for President Trump may be to go around Congress altogether and declare a national emergency. I think we might work a deal, and if we don't, I may go that route. That threat hangs over the president's trip to the border tomorrow, even though he doesn't seem to want to go, telling a group of TV anchors privately, it's not going to change a damn thing, but I'm still doing it, according to The New York Times. Democrats say he had the same attitude today with them. After the shutdown breakdown, the nation's barreling toward what could become the longest government closure in history. Hallie Jackson, NBC News, the White House. Police are now seeking the DNA from all male staff at the Phoenix Care Facility where a woman in a vegetative state gave birth. Court orders have been issued for anyone refusing to give the sample voluntarily. The woman had been in a vegetative state for over a decade when she gave birth late last month. Police revealing today they were alerted after a call came in about a baby in distress. The care facility says they welcome the testing and are making uncovering the truth their top priority. Earlier this week, the CEO stepped down after 28 years running the care home. Both the baby and the mother are now recovering at a local hospital. New rules have been put in place for Canadians flying drones. The rule of thumb is actually a requirement for them to go online and to figure out what they're going to do so that they can pass the exam and how they have to register their drone. Those are not those are not suggestions. Those are requirements. The new rules apply to all drones weighing between 250 grams and 25 kilograms. There's also a new minimum age limit of 14 for basic operations and 16 for advanced. And pilots can fly them no more than 400 feet above ground level. This announcement follows a pair of incidents in London where flights were delayed or suspended due to drone sightings in space reserved for air travel. The new rules come into effect June 1st and apply to all operators, whether they fly for fun, work or research. The gaming company behind two wildly popular video games gets an F rating with the Better Business Bureau. The BBB says Epic Games, the producer of Fortnite and Infinity Blade, has 279 complaints on file in the past three years. 271 of those were filed in 2018 alone. The majority of complaints involve customer service and refund or exchange issues for in-game purchases. Despite numerous attempts by the BBB to contact Epic Games, the company has failed to respond. A seal trapped in plastic on the beach in Washington State got some help from a couple of kind-hearted police officers. Stephen Hill captured the video in Ocean Shores, Washington, Monday. The officer spent close to four minutes cutting and untangling the netting using a catch pole to keep the animal's head down while cutting the plastic around its neck. After the final cord was cut, the seal immediately rushed back out into the ocean. I'm sure glad to finally be freed. Amazing. In Health Matters tonight, a Surrey woman is sharing her story in hopes of helping other women. The 28-year-old thought she was suffering from a holiday flu before she ended up in the ICU. Turns out she had toxic shock syndrome, a sometimes deadly sickness that's often linked to tampon use. And while doctors say it is rare, it's important to know the signs. Linda Aylesworth has more. From her South Surrey home, Kimberly Morrill creates jewelry from natural gemstones and a certain something extra. 
might also Reiki charge my bracelets and my gemstones. So that makes them a little bit more special. Reiki is a healing technique. Her hope to give her customers good health, something she wished she had last month. I just thought it was the flu, something like that. Her heart was racing and she had a fever. I was very faint, like I was, I was almost crawling because I was so dizzy. By morning, a bright red rash covered much of her body. Within 24 hours of the onset of symptoms, Kimberly was in the intensive care unit at Peace Arch Hospital. She had toxic shock syndrome. Toxic shock syndrome is a whole body response to a very severe infection, um, and it's quite a dangerous syndrome, rare but dangerous. It's most often caused by staph and strep bacteria, which in certain situations release toxins, igniting a war in the immune system. About half of the cases come from tampon use. So basically the tampon doesn't cause the syndrome, the tampon just provides the environment for the bacteria to grow. While rare, tampon manufacturers suggest not wearing them for more than eight hours. Other advice to reduce the risk? You want to choose the lowest absorbency tampon. Uh, you want to have good hand hygiene before using any tampon product and basically follow the, the guidelines. Thing is, Kimberly did follow the guidelines. Three weeks after her ordeal began, she wants women to know the risks and the symptoms. I feel blessed to be alive. I have a renewed kind of gratitude for life. I just am here to spread awareness that it can happen to anybody. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Rail workers in Austria pull off an amazing rescue after an avalanche. We'll show you right after Christie's forecast. That's not the only place they saw a lot of snow. Christie joins us right now with a look at some of the pics from Vancouver Island. And a lot of photos coming in today. One of the hardest hit areas, you two, the Courtney Comox area with 24 centimeters in the north section. Mount Washington also got hammered, which was great news for them. But yeah, great photos. Thank you to everyone. Here's the breakdown of the numbers. So anywhere from 13 to 24 in that area, Campbell River 16. And then Whistler 22. The models had a pretty good sense as to what was going to happen, although it was underdone, I would say, for the uh, Port Alberni area, not as much. Uh, accumulated there. But it continues to snow in the Whistler region. Snowfall warning still in effect. Look at the roads uh, right in the Whistler area. So don't head up that way unless you're not you're prepared for snowfall. Uh, it's anywhere from Squamish right up into Whistler that we could see that snowfall. Uh, more likely in Squamish, zero to two centimeters. It is going to warm up fairly quickly and change over to rain if it's not rain already. And then there's also a risk of freezing rain along the Sea to Sky Highway. We do expect it all to change over to rain, but not likely until the overnight period for the Sea to Sky Highway. Now, meanwhile, uh, Coquihalla as well as Hope Princeton have a risk of freezing rain. They'll see a few flurries. But the one area we're watching really is the Kootenai Pass area. 15 centimeters of snow still expected, and they're still doing some avalanche control in that area. Still closed, expected to be closed until 7 p.m. Check out Drive BC for more information there. Meanwhile, Terrace will see light snow, wet and windy along coastal regions, but fairly dry in through the interior regions. Just light snow in the morning for Revelstoke and down in through the West Kootenai region. For our area, light rain and mild conditions with a high of 11 to 9 to 11 degrees tomorrow. And then look at that, pretty dry for the next several days. A nice looking long range forecast, if you ask me. One last snow shot from, for you from Whistler. And I tried to get the name of this little guy, but uh, Lauren wasn't able to get back to me, but great uh, shot, action <laughs> shot anyways. Thanks, Lauren. Snowball fight, a Frenchie, right? Is that a Frenchie? Looks like it, doesn't it?
So cute. <laughs> cute. All right, thank you very much, Christy. Now back to that rescue. Sharp-eyed train workers with a national rail company in Austria making a rather unusual rescue. That's right, the train was traveling between the towns of Admont and Hiflau when the driver spotted an avalanche on the tracks at the entrance to the national park. When the train came to a stop, the driver noticed just the very top of that goat buried in the snow, so they oh. jumped into action, dug it out, freed the goat, which hopped away seemingly in excellent health. <laughs> and away it goes. Goat. And a high five. <laughs> and a pint of Dunkelweizen for the boys for a job well done, maybe later. Mm -hmm. What exactly? You put that in your car? It's a, dark, it's a dark wheat beer. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. When the Canucks play Arizona tomorrow, at home, they've had a few days off, a little bit of practice. They uh, won't have Josh Levo. He missed practice today. Still suffering with the upper body slash back injury. And neither will Elias Pettersson play. But he should be back on his skates maybe as early as tomorrow. Expecting Petey to skate tomorrow or Friday, which is a good sign. And then we'll reassess it from there. Really both of them. Once they skate, we'll, we'll reassess it. I hope that Levo's back sooner than later. Now with Pettersson and Levo out. Adam Gaudet is back in town from Utica. He'll play tomorrow against Arizona. Not sure how many minutes he'll get, but he was skating on what looked to be a potential second line today with Sven Berici and Jake Vertanen. So if that is the case, he should get some decent ice time. When he was here before, he was a bit snake-bitten when it came to scoring. He had chances. He just wasn't getting the puck in the net. Definitely, you know, I was getting chances, they just weren't going in, and, you know, uh, they started to go in in Utica, so hopefully that translates to here, and, you know, uh, I just got to bear down a little bit more, and they'll start going in. Well, he quite easily could have had five or six goals, he missed some good chances, and he hasn't been a liability in his own zone. You know, there's certainly parts of his game that he's going to have to improve on to become the player that we envision, but I think he's smart enough to understand that as well. So last night in Toronto, they got their chance to say goodbye to what may be Vince Carter's last game in T.O. He has been in the league for 21 years. You know, the Grizzlies could have drafted him. Instead, they drafted Mike Bibby. Way to go, Stu Jackson. Uh, this was uh, basically the winning basket by Toronto. Look at this. Everybody touches the ball. Everybody. And then Serge Ibaka. All right. Vancouver Pee Wee hockey teams love for their ailing coaches caught the eye of hundreds of thousands of people. Their coach Stephen Gillis is a rare kidney disease and they want to help him overcome it by finding a donor. But the disease, while debilitating and life-threatening, has not stopped Stephen from coaching the kids. Even though he might be like hurting, he still makes it to every practice and every game for us. And so I think it's really good that he does that, and I think it's kind that he does that. So it's a battle one-on-one -on -one in the corner. Stephen Gillis should be in the hospital, not on the ice. The 38-year-old is in desperate need of a life-saving kidney transplant, and his peewee hockey team knows it. It's why they created their own video to tell Stephen's story in the hope of finding their coach a kidney. We're the PWA2 hockey team from the Vancouver Minor Hockey Association. We need your help! Steven really needs a kidney. If he does not find one, he might not be able to coach. This will be a big loss for minor hockey. Please help us find these people. We're asking you to help us spread our message. We need to find Steven a living donor who's willing to donate a kidney. 
I mean, I'm speechless. It's, it's, when they showed me the video, um, you know, of course I was a complete mess, uh, as I've been for a couple of days and, um, it was just, it was so beautiful and just so touching and kind. Our coach has Crohn's disease. This past summer he got sick and just thought it was his Crohn's. That's when Stephen found out he also had a rare form of kidney disease. The video has gone viral, over 350,000 views and counting. The message delivered by a group of 11 and 12 year olds whose life Faster. lessons are extending well beyond the sheet of ice that they share with Stephen. One that truly is life and death for a guy who's been waging a battle with Crohn's disease for almost 15 years and now this. I, uh, I, got, I got really worried about it because I guess all this attention is really, you know, um, really made it clear <laughs> uh, more than ever. Um, you know, doctors tell you something like, hey, you need a kidney transplant. Hey, we're probably going to put you on a dialysis. And not that it goes in one ear and out the other, but it's, you know, okay. What else you got? Everybody's going to see how fast you are. Steven's team is called the Vancouver Spirit, fitting for a special coach and fitting for a group of kids mature well beyond their years. He means a lot to us. He not only tries to make us better players, but he also tries to make us better human beings. He, he's like, I would say, a best friend. The most rewarding thing for me in all my life out of everything I've done is coaching these kids. And, uh, and that's where I made a difference. Mm -hmm. Wow. Hopefully. I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Squire. A great snow report for you this Wednesday. Whistler Blackcomb getting 20 centimeters of fresh snow, grouse and cypress a little bit with one and two centimeters. Into the interior, Revelstoke getting a whopping 19 centimeters of fresh snow, Fernie 6, Manny Park 6, and Whitewater 12. Big White also got a little bit of snow, 6 centimeters, Silver Star 8, and Sun Peaks got an incredible 18 centimeters in the last 24 hours. The winner, though, was Mount Washington with 25 centimeters of fresh snow, but Kicking Horse and Power King also got a light dusting just to freshen things up. Coming up on ET Canada, the shocking new series about R. Kelly inspires a new investigation, plus... Award show love for Star is Born and Golden Globe reaction for Sandra Oh. All of that is coming up at 7 right after the news hour. But for now, it's back to Chris and Sophie. Thanks, Cheryl. Well, it's a feat that was once deemed impossible, but one American explorer proved them all wrong. Mm -hmm. The endurance athlete has become the first person to cross Antarctica solo and unaided. Now, back home and thawed out, he's recounting his remarkable journey. This is what Colin O'Brady had to endure as he crossed Antarctica. Has it sunk in yet, what you did? You know, I think it comes in waves. It's a beautiful thing to see, and um, it's still kind of sinking in. I'm officially all alone out here. He traversed the continent solo more than 900 miles. No one brought him supplies, no help from wind-driven sails. And there was no shortage of wind. Not doing good. trying to hold it together. Was there ever a point in the journey where you're like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to finish this? There were several moments, but I think the most um, clear moment of that was the first week for me. 
At first, Colin's sled, packed with food, weighed 375 pounds. He worked with sponsor Standard Process to create meals, including so-called Colin bars. When you're burning, on average, 10,000 calories a day, you, you need to make sure that you're close to balancing that so you can keep putting foot after foot after foot. After 54 days, Colin could finally see the finish, but he didn't sprint. He paused. So to really kind of slow down and enjoy it and really kind of look around for the last time was also really beautiful. And then he reached the end. This was such a hard journey. (laughs) It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Today, Colin went through a battery of tests to measure the journey's impact on his body. As for his mind, he'll need more time to think up his next adventure. Joe Fryer, NBC News, Charlotte. That I would be saying, I think I'm done. Yeah. yeah. I think like, I'm good. All inclusive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I want a tropical vacation now. Yeah. A nice warm wow. beach. And I thought I struggled putting the tent down at Alice Lake. <laughs> So not to take anything away from O'Brady or a second man who completed the same feat two days later, but there is talk of another man, Borga Usland, who did the same trek unaided two decades earlier. Apparently, at one point, he used a homemade ski sail or a piece of square fabric, Mm -hmm. square, that would catch the wind and help move him. And some say that apparently disqualifies his journey from being classified as unsupported. But he made it himself. Yeah. So, so he supported himself? With, no, yes. with nobody drop, nobody showing up at his skidoo or anything like that. Right. So. Could look at YouTube to get some guy to show him how to do it. No, he had to do it a month There was no YouTube 20 years That's ago. That's right. 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 So.